tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Welcome to The Feast. I'm your host, Laura Carlson, and we're bringing you stories from the best meals of history. Well, folks, we are back. And we've got a whole bunch of delicious new stories from Feast's past for you. And we thought, what better way to kick off Season 2 of the podcast than with a story perfect for Halloween? It is that time of year for ghost stories, after all. As folks get ready for Halloween, or perhaps the Christian All Souls Day, or maybe even the Mexican Dia de los Muertos, it's perhaps no surprise that cultures throughout the world hold festivals honoring the spirits of the dead. And anyone who's gone trick-or-treating or enjoyed some pan de muerto, bread specifically made for the Mexican holiday, food plays a massive part in these festivals. As we saw with King Midas's tomb in our last episode, food and death often go hand in hand. For the living, eating can be a very real way of reminding yourself that you are in fact still alive. Food is what keeps us going after all, and eating can be a source of great comfort. No wonder so many cultures have traditions that specifically involve people coming together over food after a loved one has died. But food can also be specifically for the dead. Many cultures throughout the ages believed that a person's need or even interest in food continued long after they had died, something that kept the soul nourished in the afterlife. Food could also be a way of letting a spirit know that their friends and family hadn't forgotten them. Yearly offerings of food or other tokens kept a person's memory alive in the community sometimes for decades or even centuries after they had passed on. Today, autumn has a deadlock, please forgive the pun, on many of these traditions. The transition between fall to winter, the end of the harvest season, the shortening of days. Perhaps it's natural that this is the time for scary stories, setting up jack-o'-lanterns to keep away the dark, and wondering about just what lies in the shadows. But that certainly hasn't been the case for many cultures. Today, we're leaving October and the 21st century far behind us, and heading way back to a very different kind of festival honoring the dead, but one no less bound up in food and feasting. We're actually headed to February. Well, maybe we'd better call it Februarius. Just outside of Rome at the dawn of the 3rd century A.D., to dine in graveyards as we celebrate the Roman festival of honoring the dead, Parentalia. (laughs) 
Today, the Leonardo da Vinci International Airport, which probably has one of the best names for an airport in the world, shuttles millions of people every year in and out of the city of Rome. Maybe you've flown into it, arcing over the Tyrrhenian Sea on the west coast of Italy, getting a bird's-eye view of the Colosseum and the Forum, before landing miles outside of the city center, getting to deal with the glories of Italian traffic as you battle your way back downtown. What you may not have realized, with your carry-on bag stowed and your seat back in its full and upright position, as your plane touched down is that you were landing more or less on top of what used to be one of the major ports of ancient Rome. If you looked at the plane window at the right moment, you might even be able to see an odd lake sitting just south of the airport, shaped in a perfect hexagon. Now that's actually no lake at all, but the remains of an artificial harbor built to allow trade ships from Egypt or Gaul to dock, bearing grain, olive oil, and other necessities of Roman life into the heart of the empire. So let's head back there, away from your cramped airplane seat, recycled air, and the drone of jet engines, to that ancient port town, walking along one of Rome's famous roads. We find ourselves on a bustling thoroughfare, known as the Via Flavia, or the Flavian Way, which connects two major port cities of the empire, the town of Ostia, whose name literally means mouth in Latin, a nod to its role in keeping Rome fed through the many ships that dock at its harbor, as well as the newer and more northern town of Portus, which means, well, port. The Romans were nothing if not pragmatic about naming things. Although on either side of the road, there are fields and trees as far as the eye can see, we're actually on an island. Well, a fake island. With Rome's need for imports growing almost every year, Ostia and Portus have had to continually expand their harbors, but even so, could only allow so many ships in at a time. To help larger ships navigate their way up the Tiber River to Rome, Emperors have ordered the construction of a number of canals, which now crisscross this region. In the process, the whole area has become an accidental island, cut off from the mainland by those shipping canals. The region has earned the name Isola Sacra, or Holy Island, probably because of the nearby necropolis, or cemetery, a sprawling city of the dead, serving the nearby harbor towns. Strangely, even though we've headed back about 2,000 years, it looks like traffic hasn't improved much. Not a Vespa in sight, but the road is packed with carts and litters, mostly with people headed to the necropolis. All businesses will be shut today in honor of the festival. Now, because Rome didn't have any concept of our modern work week, no regular Saturdays or Sundays where businesses were traditionally closed, festivals were the only kind of regular break for Romans from their trades. In any given year, about 160 days were officially dedicated to different kinds of holidays in which all businesses had to close, no trials could be held, you couldn't even get married if you wanted to. In essence, these days gave the Romans a weekend of sorts, chances to get together with friends or family in order to celebrate and worship, depending on the holiday. 
This festival, taking place in mid-February, lasts for eight days. Actually, it's a blend of different festivals, each requiring a different meal or ritual. Starting with the public sacrifice, led usually by a Vestal Virgin on February 13th, Romans called the whole period the Parentalia. As the name might hint, this festival was dedicated to one's parents, but more generally, a tribute to all one's ancestors who had passed on. A festival dedicated to the dead. As we approach the necropolis, we can already start to see some of the taller tombs peeking through the trees. Most of the tombs we'll see today are no simple headstones, but much more akin to what you might see today in New Orleans parish cemeteries. Giant stone family mausoleums, often lavishly decorated to reflect wealth and power. This style is known now as a columbarium. To us, they might resemble miniature Roman temples, or even homes, arranged as if in streets. Now, if we were in the high-rent cemeteries of Rome, you could see some whoppers of monuments. Imperial tombs, for example, could be entire complexes, with multiple rooms, areas for worship and sacrifice, tended to on a daily basis in some cases. But the tombs of Isola Sacra are a bit more middle class. The final resting places of bakers, sculptors, midwives, woodworkers, doctors, blacksmiths, among many others. And given Ostia and Portus's size as port centers, there are quite a few tombs here. Maybe 200, maybe more. But even the tombs of the Roman middle or working class are pretty massive affairs compared to your average tombstones of today. Since tombs were usually family affairs, you wanted to make sure that there was enough space for the whole clan. Of course, many folks also used their tombs to make final statements about their life's accomplishments. Massive marble edifices with mosaics and elaborate decoration. But even beyond trying to have enough space for all the future generations to fit, or bragging about your material wealth, there were other arguably more practical reasons, these tombs began to resemble small homes, with separate rooms with tables, wells, even entire kitchens. See, since the earliest days of Rome, all burials were legally required to take place outside city walls, a common-sense regulation to prevent disease or contamination associated with dead bodies from infecting the rest of the city's population. But it also meant that people often had to travel quite a distance in order to get to their family mausoleum. Since this festival, the Feralia, was an annual affair, and bringing a prepared meal all the way to the necropolis wasn't exactly easy or convenient, many enterprising Romans started building kitchens into the tombs themselves. After all, this wouldn't be the only time Romans would visit their family tombs laden with food and drink. Roman funerals lasted for days, where the family would die not once, but twice at a grave. During a funeral, an offering of wine was poured onto, or even into, a tomb. Some Roman tombs even had special tubes or a series of holes built right into them to make the process even more direct. The Roman period of mourning was traditionally concluded with what was known as the Ninth Day Dinner, held nine days after the funeral a meal eaten entirely at the gravesite. Families would even return frequently throughout the year, often celebrating the deceased's birthday with food made and eaten at the tomb. So you wanted to be comfortable, 
you were going to be here a lot. Those who could afford it even included sun terraces, dining rooms, and lounges within their family cubicularium. A veritable home away from home. What with these holes and tubes and tombs, it's clear that the spirits of the Roman dead were intended to share in these meals, that they continued to want and enjoy food even in the afterlife. And if we look at the decoration of the tombs in the Isola Sacra Necropolis, we can see this expectation of banquets and feasting carved right into the tombs themselves. Now, as we enter the grounds of the necropolis, we find ourselves by the family tomb of Varia and Verius, who would run a blacksmith shop during their lives. A solid middle-class couple, they clearly spent quite a bit of time and money on their tomb, which has been in the necropolis now for about 100 years. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Outside, we can see images of Varius's former trade. Images of hammers and chisels, symbols of the tools he used to work with and make in the nearby port town. The family invites us in for a closer look as they make preparations for the festival meal. Inside, we can see the sarcophagus of their ancestors, and it is a marvelously carved thing, depicting the Greco-Roman myth of the boar hunt of Meliager. Now, if you don't know the myth, I highly recommend you Google it. Great myth-type stuff about a particularly fearsome pig. But interestingly, what's represented on the sarcophagus isn't the boar hunt itself, but actually the sumptuous banquet that followed. Scenes of cooking and eating surround the sarcophagus lid, and it's apparently a very common theme for Roman funerary art. Tombs throughout the Roman Empire frequently feature this kind of culinary imagery, sometimes referencing a feast from Greco-Roman mythology, others simply showing basic scenes of cooking and eating. Perhaps a reminder to future generations that whomever eventually inhabits the tomb expects to be fed well and frequently. Some funerary art goes even further, showing the deceased positioned as if ready to eat, reclining in the Roman style on a couch, often with some food or a cup of wine already laid out in front of them. We'll put up some examples of these on the website, so you can take a look at how some Romans imagine themselves feasting, even in the afterlife. Now, the Parentalia lasts a full eight days concluding with the specific festival of Feralia on the final day, February 21st. Thought to come from the Latin word to bring, the Feralia was associated with the big final meal of the festival. But even during the other eight days, relatives cleaned and decorated the tombs, making a numbering of offerings to their departed family. Garlands of roses, violets, and myrtle, flowers associated with mourning, would cover the tomb, and other small offerings of wine, or even olives, figs, or grapes could be left on top of the tomb or dropped into the pre-made tomb holes. Although it seems that the living were more than welcome to eat any food they liked during the festival, the dead were apparently a bit more picky. Bits of bread or grain, especially if they had been soaked in wine, were usually fair gifts but offerings of salt and beans were particularly associated with the dead. Beans, for example, were used to appease the spirits of the deceased in a number of different festivals throughout the year, 
including the Lemuria, a festival which took place in May. At that time, Romans were encouraged to give or even throw black beans at the dead, like an ancient way to keep a pesky ghost or poltergeist from haunting your home. Black beans were associated with the dead largely because of their color. The Roman writer Faustus made the connection because of the look of the bean's flower, all white, with the black eye, or the bean, in the very center. Given that beans were one of the only naturally black foods the Romans were aware of, and it was the color Romans associated with mourning and the underworld, Romans assumed that the dead would naturally be attracted to them. Now, Romans loved their color symbolism, and just like the mourning color of black beans, roses too found their way into funerary customs, but for a blend of reasons. Romans considered roses and even violets the color of blood, and so considered them appropriate for the gravesite. But also interestingly, roses carried another meaning, symbolizing eternity, perhaps even the Elysian fields, the evergreen paradise of the hereafter in Roman mythology. Because of this two-part symbolism, roses could be found everywhere in a Roman necropolis. There were even specific festivals dedicated to the flower, known as the Rosalia, which were held in May and June when roses were in season in Italy, where family members were expected to adorn all graves with rose petals. Romans were even known to make wine flavored with rose or even violets, along with a bit of honey. The famous Apicius, author of one of the only known Roman cookbooks, gives an entire recipe for rose or violet flavored wine, certainly a beverage suited for parentalia. And just like the tombs themselves, Romans apparently had no problem at all dictating the kinds of ceremonial rites and celebrations to be held in their honor every parentalia. One Roman left a particularly hefty sum, somewhere in the realm of between five dollars to $10,000, to allow his very specific demands to be made for the festival, including decorating his tomb with flowers, anointing it with a pound of a specific kind of oil, called nard oil, if you can believe it, performing a sacrifice in his honor, holding a wrestling contest at the site, including reward money for the victors and losers, and requiring that a number of local officials attend a dinner held specifically in his honor in the specially made dining room located above his tomb. Quite the list of demands from the hereafter. Now this annual commemorative dinner the Roman requires at his tomb isn't as strange as it might sound. Roman societies, known as collegia, often were organized around these graveside dinners. Although folks like Varius and Varia might have devoted sons, daughters, and other descendants to keep watch over their tomb and make sure they were well-fed in the afterlife, many other people in the Roman community couldn't rely on such family ties. Folks who belonged to what we might call burial societies were often from lower orders in society, usually slaves or poor freedmen. Each month, every member would pay a certain amount into the society's communal fund, which was then used to bury its members and hold commemorative feasts at these societal tombs at least once a year, sometimes many more. Some clubs were organized according to trade, midwives, for example. Others were dedicated to a particular god like Diana or Apollo. It was kind of like being part of a bowling team, except that your weekly games would be held in the local cemetery. 
As the sun sets here on February 21st at Isla Sacra, the festivities are just kicking off. Some people are attending wrestling matches or making sacrifices, according to the wishes of their ancestors or society members. So it's not exactly an evening of quiet reflection here at the necropolis. Although many of the college tombs have their own dining rooms built in, other families eat their meals outside. Often, there's simply not enough space inside a basic tomb to fit the whole family. But the whole town has turned out for the festival. This is the biggest necropolis around, after all, so many folks are taking the opportunity to visit with friends and colleagues. As lamps are lit in the family and society tombs, it's a pretty jovial spirit around here, particularly once folks start sampling the rose wine. In the morning, there will be the inevitable complaint that some family members polished off the wine reserved for offering to the dead. But don't worry, even though this is the end of one festival, there's an entirely different one tomorrow, which means no one has to worry about an early start. Now that the spirits of those who have passed on in the family have been honored, it's time to honor those still alive. So February 22nd, the day after the eight-day festival of Parentalia, is known as Charistia, or the Cara Cognatio, meaning the festival of dear relatives. It's a time when old family feuds were put to rest and gifts were exchanged, with even more feasting and dining, this time maybe, though, away from the necropolis. So gift-giving, ghostly spirits, roses, and of course lots of good meals, topped off with the best of Roman wine. If we wanted to put all this in 1990s movie terms, February for the Romans was along the lines of the Nightmare Before Christmas, with just a touch of Valentine's Day thrown in for good measure. Parentalia will remain a staple of the Roman calendar throughout Western Europe for centuries. Even surviving the Roman Empire's embrace of Christianity, a century from now in the 300s. Many converted Christians will actually uphold the custom of leaving food or other tokens at gravesites, particularly those of sainted or otherwise holy individuals. Even Christian calendars still include the holiday in the later 400s. Although the full-scale ritual of parentalia may have been toned down in the Christian era, the practice of giving out food and even sometimes money after someone had died continued for almost a thousand years. The deaths of wealthy Christians, particularly royalty, were often accompanied by the giving of alms or food for the poor on the 3rd, 7th, and 30th days after the person had died. You might argue Parentalia even has modern echoes in the Chinese festival of the Qingming, observed every April, a time where families remember their ancestors, often leaving specific types of food, like pork or sugar buns, at the grave. And, of course, there's the famous festival of Mexico's Dia de los Muertos. Again, a time of honoring the dead. This time around autumn in late October and early November, where families decorate tombs with beautiful marigold flowers and remember their deceased loved ones through a celebration of food. But for now, back in 3rd century Rome, we'll leave the families and the collegia to their feasting heading north out of the necropolis, back to Portus and the modern day. If you're interested in learning more about Parentalia or other Roman customs, there is some great stuff out there. We'll put up some pictures of some of the tombs from Isola Sacra so you can see some of the Roman graveside kitchens for yourselves, 
as well as maps showing all the canals and artificial harbors Rome created nearby. Those folks were nothing if not good engineers. We'll also put up links to some of the amazing research people have done into the festivals of Parentalia and other Roman food and social customs. This episode wouldn't have been possible without the fantastic help of Fanny Delansky at Brock University in Canada, the late Joan Alcock, and the late JMC Toynbee, who literally wrote the book on Roman funerary customs. We'll put up links to their work on the episode page at our website at www.thefeastpodcast.org. This episode featured music by Axeltree, Chris Zabriskie, and Kai Engel. You can find more information about them also on our website. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson. Technical direction by Mike Port. And if you haven't already, do take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's all for us this week. We'll be back in two weeks with another great story from the dining tables of history. I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast. <laughs>